Hey everyone, I'm Brian Conley of Hunters HD Gold, and you're listening to Season 2 of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. This podcast takes a deep dive into what it takes to be a match director, manufacturer, sponsored shooter, or just an everyday shooter trying to win his or her first major. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Hunters HD Gold Behind the Lens. Welcome back to another episode of Hunter's HD Go Behind the Lens. Today I'm sitting down with a gentleman I've met a couple of times at the range, but never really had any time to talk to. And you kind of know that's how I kind of start some of these stories sometime. But today, sitting down with Charlie Perez. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thank you for the opportunity. Man, thank you so much for taking time out to sit down with me. It's one of those things we've talked a couple of times about doing this because I've heard a lot about you just on the shooting side of it, but don't know yeah. anything about you at all. I'm, you've learned a lot about me, I guess, by listening to some of the stuff I do. But you know, how long, you know, we're in 2000, what, 2022 now. How long have you been doing yeah. this? So this, I was actually thinking about this today. So uh, yeah. next year, next season will be my 15th season of uh, practical shooting sports. So, okay. yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Wow. So yeah. what got you into shooting to begin with? Is this something you did with your, your family growing up and hunting or wh where are you from? I mean, so you know, where does all this go to? I, I grew up in northern Colorado and okay. uh, growing up in the quote unquote country. Yes. I had the opportunity to you know shoot long gun stuff and shotguns and that kind of stuff. Nothing right. competitively. Right. But uh, what I did is <clears throat> that's where I learned, like, I actually had a summer job as a kid is shooting prairie dogs off of uh, farmer's fields and that kind now, of stuff. See, I have not done that yet. And I, I, had, I had an opportunity to go one year with a gentleman who used to work for Smith & Wesson by the name of Stan Sharparski. Yeah. And um, he invited me to go to Wyoming and I had two guns set up. I had a case of. Um, 22250. Yep. I had a case of 223 because I was taking two different guns and also another case of 20, I oh, know, 17. Because mm -hmm. he said, you'll need about three rifles. Yeah. And I said, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> he said, we will burn some guns up shooting prairie dogs. And, and oh, wow, yeah. never got to go, but that is my dream to do one time. So yeah. what, what age were you doing that? So it was actually when I was around 13 or 14. Okay. And that was, is like, I think about the safety stuff we have in these matches, which is awesome. Right. But back then it was like, okay, see it dark, you know, yes. <laughs> you know, they send you out of the house with the, you know, a box of ammo. And like at that time I was shooting at 1022 and okay. like I would shoot all day. And that was back when, like before you actually like were using eye protection yeah. and <laughs> hearing yeah. protection and that kind of stuff. So, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just a difference. Like I was thinking about this, talking to a friend not too long ago that like me in, like in high school, I remember that, you know, people's cars would still have like gun racks in the back. And right, that's correct. You know, there'd be shooting events after school and mm -hmm. like the the gym teachers and stuff would have people bring their guns in and put them in the locker and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. So it's just we had that. Time. We had that in Alabama back in the 80s. But it was just because we're all rednecks and they had rifles and stuff just to show off. They had a rifle. <laughs> yeah. Different experience from what you had altogether. Yeah. But we were, you know, now it'd be unheard of to do that. You'd be absolutely you know, just nuts. So when you when you're going out doing prairie dog mm -hmm. shooting at, you know, 13 or 14 year old, was that like a job to get to get rid of them? Or is it like, yeah, so OK, what I would do is is, quote unquote, a job. But OK, it was like a summertime activity that I would do. Like I would mm -hmm. go to the different farmers houses and say, hey, do you need help? You know, cleaning up some of your prairie dogs and more more so like I would basically my fee was, hey, give me 22 ammo. 
and I'll oh, go okay. shoot them for you. You know, so is it like <laughs> I got to shoot and they got prey dog shot, you know? So the funny thing is, is these households that you went to already had 22 ammo for you. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's kind of like going to somebody's house. Hey, if you got 22, why are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of funny that you yeah. did that. Do you remember how far you were shooting them in that distance? Because some of those ranges out there in Colorado are just... I don't know how long they are, but they're further than a mile. Yeah. So, so like when, like with the ten twenty two, like really, like you're, you're really not re- reaching out very far, like maybe a hundred yards, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. And that ten twenty two is an iron sided thing, you know, so mm-hmm. it's pretty hard hitting dogs out a distance, but I go up to Wyoming these days and like go up with friends and have fun, you know, shooting them, reaching out and that kind of stuff, you shooting ARs or um, 22, 250s and yes. that kind of stuff. So it, it is a lot of fun. And if you want to do that, just let me know and we'll arrange a dog shoot for you. I'm in. I don't know when it's going to be based on my crazy schedule, but I, I, I will, I'm in. I've already tried to do two different excursions to go deep sea fishing down in Florida, and both times did not end up like I wanted to. But I would definitely got to do some prairie dogs sometime. Is that done in the the winter, the fall, the spring? Um, what kind of season is that done? So it's pretty much any time. Any time. Okay. It's actually easier in the winter time because okay. you. You leave marks easier, like to know where the dogs are at. Okay, like they they're actually like at pretty good distance if you don't have really good uh, glass, you know, magnification. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they kind of blend in and it's it's harder to find them. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the wintertime, you have the contrast of like white snow versus dog holes and dogs and right. that kind of stuff. So it works out pretty good. See, I remember back when my family vacation back when I was 15, 16 year old went to um, South Dakota. And we, I think the end goal was Mount Rushmore, mm-hmm. but we ended up at Devil's Tower. But we went through some areas where prairie dogs were just nuts oh, everywhere. Yeah. Is it the same today in Colorado? Are they just, are they just everywhere yeah. now or have they been eradicated some? They, <laughs> you know, so there's always the urban sprawl, yeah. but it's it's pretty interesting, at least in Colorado. And I don't know what it is about Colorado, but there's there's usually like prairie dog towns like in town you know before they've built up a little section you right. know, a few acres of land you know right so they they end up having to like get rid of the dogs on like they don't shoot them up they they usually like trap them or mm-hmm. you know poison them or whatever but so um, it's still the varmint that tear, that tears up crops and everything else yes okay. yes and and the farmers actually appreciate you helping with that because like if they have livestock and whatnot, they can like get their livestock can get hurt, you know, like breaking legs and that kind of stuff when they're walking around the fields and whatnot. So, Makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, through this process, 13, 14 years old, what were you doing in high school? Were you, were you doing sports? Were you doing, you know, what was what, what was that like for you? So I my parents were I, I hate to say that they were gypsies, but they, they oh, moved a lot. I'm so intrigued. And, and I, <laughs> I actually went to 12 different high schools. 12, 12 different high schools in so, the same state. No. So my my mom always lived somewhere in Colorado. Okay. And my dad lived somewhere on the East Coast, you know, so from New York all the way down to Florida. And they both moved a ton and they got divorced when I was two. So I'd always do like this back and forth, back and forth between both parents. But they were still gypsies then that were moving around. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't know why, oh, wow. but they would always just move a ton. And so I. I really didn't like a lot of the team sports in school and whatnot. Yeah. You, yeah. Like you have to be on a regular schedule. And yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, I always felt like oh, I'm not going to be here that long. You know, why get involved in the, the team sports stuff and that kind of thing. Did you ever have time when you were older to investigate that with them to, to see? What you know, they- <laughs> I, I think it was more like, it's one of the things like I, I always, I hate to 
you're like, hey, parents, you know, why'd you move me around so much I to make well, it a I negative thing? That. I can understand that. But I, I, pers- like seeing between the lines, it was, I think it was more like employment related. Okay. You know, like kind of just moving around where the work is going, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff and that kind of situation. And my mom basically raised my sister and I as uh, a single mom with like shipping us off here and there to, to meet our dad, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So she was always working two or three jobs all the time. Was she okay with guns? She was, she was, Good. I mean, she grew up in that environment and it was really never uh, like they, it, another funny thing, like in, in my junior high, we actually had a hunter safety course in school, right? Like we did the shooting portion of it with 22s in the lunchroom. Wow. You know, and that's like I was saying, like, it's a, just a difference. Yeah. Aurora's changed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's absolutely changed Not a lot. that you were there. I'm just being funny. That, do you, did your mom have a gun based on raising kids you, on her own like that? You know, I don't think so. Just don't know. I okay. it, it was never like a oh we need this to defend ourselves mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. Oh, the gun safety stuff was absolutely a priority. Right. Like she made me, you know, show her safe gun handling, show me it's clear, you oh, know, wow. all that kind of stuff. Wonderful. To make sure that like when I'm sending my 13, 14 year old out to go yeah. <laughs> shoot prairie dogs all day that you, yeah. you're not going to end up with extra holes when you come home, that kind of thing. Makes sense. What about your dad? Anything different there? Uh, you know, so I never actually did any shooting stuff with my dad. Like okay. he, he, he and I don't know if it's because he predominantly lived in states where there's way more restrictions on firearms and that kind of stuff being right. on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But uh, it really wasn't a factor with my dad. That's cool. So you're in a situation where, you know, kind of moving around a little bit when did when did it kind of get to a point where it settled uh so it settled when we we when i was in my <laughs> when i went to my last high school okay. and that was in in colorado is in longmont which is probably about 30 or 40 miles north of denver okay and so i at that point i i was like you know i'm tired of moving around all the time mm-hmm. you know so i when i as soon as i turned 18 i moved out i was like hey i'm gonna do my own thing figure out what this whole being adults all about and what was that and, and, and so I, I moved out and you know got you know jobs and okay. figured out like go through the whole like young adult like figure out all the jobs you don't want to do to figure out the jobs <laughs> you want to do yes sir. right <laughs> exactly so i went down that path and i i chose not to um actually go to college because Okay. I, I was looking at my, you know, my friends that I had and some of them were like, we're going to go to college and other ones were just like, I'm going to go down the experience route and like pick a, a work path and figure out what that is. And mm-hmm. I think I got lucky in that manner. Like I've always been a, a tinkerer and a fixer, like fixing stuff, you know? So I, I went down, I started out as like a, the copier guy, you know, fixing photocopiers and that mm-hmm. kind of situation. And it, translated into fixing data tape libraries and then fixing people and fix, you know, so it's, I've always kind of had that um, assessment of what's broken. How do I fix it? How does it work? How does mm-hmm. it not work? You know, that kind of thing. And does some of that come from the household when you were there being the adult, having to fix things around the house? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I also attribute it to, I, I had family members like where there wasn't as much consumable things. Mm-hmm. Like if, the dishwasher broke. We fixed it. Right. Right. Or the fridge had a problem. We fixed it. You know, we didn't just throw it away and get the a dishwasher. Dishwashers weren't $199 on every <laughs> corner back then. Exactly. Sure. Yep. So we like we fixed our we did all of our own, you know, car maintenance and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so I've never really been scared of, about 
you know, fixing things myself and figuring out, oh, I don't know how, how do I do it? And, you know, that's how I'd figure it out. Right. Yeah. So going through that process, when did you, you know, what type of career did you end up landing that was really healthy for you? So I, I was actually in the uh, data storage industry for 20 years. Okay. And the company I worked for, we predominantly did like data tape libraries. Mm-hmm. So backing up data on the tapes or uh, RAID disk arrays. And I would, I would basically be the, the guy that they would send out, oh, that's had this all bunch of problems. Nobody can fix it. You send Charlie out there and he'll fix it and get everybody okay. taken care of. Kind, kind of, of the thing. computer industry kind of thing? Yeah. Good deal. So that yeah. was back before iCloud. I mean, all this, all the yes. cloud networking then. Yes. Yep. And the, the funny part about it is like a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to save my stuff in the cloud. Well, all that stuff is usually going on to tape yeah, back anyway. Then, I remember when, <laughs> yeah, it used to be, it used to be reel to reel tape yep. back in the day because um, my dad worked for um, Unisys, which used to be, well, yeah. actually Burroughs mm-hmm. back in the early days. Mm-hmm. And they were on the banks and mm-hmm. the bottom floor of the banks would be this entire basement of nothing but computers and tape yep. and real to real machine tapes like that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like you see back when, when war games came yeah. out of the movies, that whole one yeah. room was a computer and it was 28 degrees in there because yeah. nothing could get hot. So I know, I know what kind of industry you're talking about in that. So that's wild. So your industry changed yeah. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, how did you adapt to that, you know, through that process without the schooling, just to, so through experience? I, and this, it's funny you ask that because, when I came into the practical shooting sports, I, I went from unclassified to grandmaster in 18 months. And okay. that was like buying my first pistol of my own. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know how to grip this thing, you know, or call shots or do any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I really attributed it to, I'd had this career of teaching myself how to do stuff. Right. So like just open the manual, figure it out, go to like work with whatever I got to do. And, and figure things out, you know, and that's one of the things where I feel like we're as humans, we get lucky. Mm-hmm. Right. And like one of my when I went from fixing photocopier stuff to this data storage stuff mm-hmm. during my interview, they were really they're like, hey, you don't have any, you know, electronics background. You don't have yeah, you know, this is, back in, the, is this back in the 90s uh, is the early 2000s, early 2000s. <laughs> and that's when you couldn't even hardly get in the door sometimes without yeah. a degree. And so during my interview, they're like, yeah, we're kind of looking with somebody more experienced. And I, and I told them I can fix stuff. And, and luckily for me that at that time, the company was small enough that they manufactured their tape libraries in that same facility as the normal management side of it. Right. And I, I told them like, go break one of your libraries and I'll fix it. And you actually said that yes. in the interview. Yeah, I was like, go break one and I'll fix it. What'd they say? And they're like, and so the, the manager that um, ultimately <laughs> ended up hiring me is like, okay. That's so, so cool. So he, they went in the back and they set up, like they've made a failure of some manner. And I yeah. went and read the documentation and I fixed it. And I'm like, there you go. And so that was really like one of my lucky. You challenged the guys that yeah. run the company in this department. Let me just challenge you. Just go break your machine. Yeah. <laughs> That's so wonderful. I can go fix it. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, I've, I've been in sales, so I can sell anything, but my, your thing was like, go break it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Wow. So you said you went to go buy your first gun. Yeah. Why? Why? So was it self-protection? It, no, it was a hundred percent around. I wanted to play the practical shooting sports. Well, how'd you find out about it? So, um, I, I found out about it by accident, actually, because um, so to back up a little bit. So through my teen years, instead of doing team sports and that kind of stuff, Uh I I, uh, raced radio control cars 
And I did that like super competitively all through high school and after high school and that kind of thing. Because really? it, it was one of those hobbies where it didn't matter where we lived. Right. Like we, cause we'd always move right. and that was the one consistent thing I could do. And gas, I gas powered ones too, right? Gas powered ones, electric ones, you know, all those that kind get, of on road, off road. Expensive. Oh yeah. I've seen some of those jokers and they're oh, yeah. fast. <laughs> yeah. So I, I raced radio control cars and I did that for almost 20 years and I, it was to the as point where as a hobby, okay. but you know, I was, I was sponsored by companies and they'd fly me around and I would, you know, you really know, get all the stuff for free. And it, it actually, it taught me a really good lesson around sponsorships right. and selling yourself as this tool, as a marketing tool. I had no idea there were sponsorships in, in radio controlled cars like that. Yes. Yes. So wow, I learned all about that and it really, towards the end, it, and it was, it was unfortunate because my my care around it, my love for it wasn't mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. but I had enough experience. And because I didn't care, I actually would perform very well because I wouldn't have the pressure of performance and that kind of stuff. I, mm -hmm. It was like a job, you know, and I told myself, you know, like I'm done, like I'm not having enjoyment around it. I'll, no matter what races I would win, mm -hmm. it was really like, okay, Mr. Sponsor, here's your win. It wasn't my win. It was your win. Like you paid mm -hmm. for me to go there and that kind of stuff. And so I, I got out of the RC racing thing. But for 20 years, you're pretty known then, I guess, right? Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. What, was there like, like, you know, we got the super squads at matches mm -hmm. we go to. Were you like part of that super yeah, squad I, of racers? I won three different nationals and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, right. You know, it, it's, it's a very small, it's pretty interesting because the RC world, our radio control world yeah. is very similar to the shooting world. Okay. Where the the population of attendees is it's almost about the same size. Mm -hmm. It's a very small kind of niche thing. Right. And um, like I, said, I, I did that for a ton of time and I, I was like, I got to do something different. Right. And I always liked wrenching on cars, uh, like real cars, even little, little RC cars, but right. real cars. And I, I, I'm a big guy. I'm six, four right. and I can't fit in. Like I wanted a, my own performance car. And I couldn't fit in a, a like a Corvette and that kind of stuff. So right. I we ended can up fit. It's just our, our heads against the hood. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 the roof. roof yeah. Yes. Yes. So I, I ended up getting one before, a, a but it's, it's not comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up getting a 2005 GTO. Oh. And I I went like fiddle crazy on that thing and added a blower and that kind of stuff. And part of those that you like universe is like there's. Um, groups of clubs, you know, that help each other wrench on their cars, right. have mod days, have track days and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the, what we would do is uh, we would actually rent out the local um, drag strip so we could do like a test and tune day. Yeah. And that costs quite a bit of money. So yes. the club is the GTO club. We would host different classes of other hobbies that we did. And one of the guys in the, in, in that club was into practical shooting and, you know, that kind of stuff. And he's nice. like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'll do a pseudo self-defense, um, uh, competition shooting class. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, it's been forever since I'd shot. Cause right. I really like once, once I got out of high school is just like, I'm busy trying to oh, you know, yeah. do career stuff. No real opportunity to Parents shoot guns. not there to sponsor you like these other kids. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was like, man, it's been forever. Like that sounds really interesting. And I, I went to this class and it was, it was very, like he set up a very simple stage. It's kind of a couple shooting positions, but mm -hmm. he, he's super gracious. He 
and just like every shooter you see, like provided all the guns and all the ammo and all the safety stuff. And, right. you know, and, and it really, that was my introduction to, Hey, we can play a game where we measure performance on a timer. Mm-hmm. Right. And we see, you know, measure performance on the paper and, you know, the targets. Right. And you, we can actually run around and, you know, draw the gun and reload dynamically. And, you know, I, I, I remember clearly thinking when we were doing this, like, when are the cops going to show up? Because <laughs> this doesn't seem legal, you know? Yes. I and, can understand that. And so right after that, um, that class that I did, I, I asked him, hey, and, and he's like, hey, it looks like you're really interested in this. There's practical shooting sports. There's three gun and IDPA and steel challenge and USPSA and all these different things. And I'm like, wow, like, I yeah, didn't, that could be overwhelming. I didn't realize like <laughs> what I didn't know. Right. Right. And so that's, uh, you know, right away, I, 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 of course, just like anybody else, you run down to the local gun store and you're like, oh, what do I get? And there's this sea of pistols. Right. And at that point, you don't know what you don't know, right? You don't right. even know what fits your hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Because you don't even know how to grip the gun yet, right? right? So I, my cousin at the time, he was a Denver uh, police officer, and, so, and I'm like, hey, he, he, you know, his one of his tools is a, a firearm. So I, right. I brought my cousin to the gun store with me, and I'm like, hey, like what the heck? Let's let's rent a couple guns and try some different stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, it was. Um, Springfield had just released their XDM okay. pistol and the first caliber that they did was in 40 caliber and like every you know novice consumer ever oh this is the new thing it must be the best thing right, right? Exactly. so <laughs> plus they do great jobs with their advertising absolutely absolutely <laughs> I've told a story before where I bought a gun just because of the advertising from Springfield yes yeah <laughs> so I there's another funny thing about that is like we rented a couple different guns, like a nine and a 40 and a 45 and, right. and shot them all. And, and my cousin puts um, a 45 case and he put a 40 case in there and he put a nine case. Okay. So he nested all three. Okay. And he's like, where do you want to be? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like the middle, I guess. Right. <laughs> like, that was the, that was the, the, the decision on which caliber I was going to buy. I want right. to be in the middle. Like, <laughs> how do you quantify that? I don't even know. But yeah. <laughs> so I ended up uh, buying an XDM 40. Right. And then I went to my first match, which was actually an IDPA match. By yourself? By, yeah, by myself. So I, the people you met, they weren't, they, you didn't get invited to your first match to them. You went on your own. All right. So one yeah. of the cool things that happens in Colorado is that we, we have a, a section website that we host all, like we have a calendar of okay. all the different shooting, not just USPSA, but steel challenge and IDPA and three gun. And like, so there's a very, is this, user f- this done by the gun range or done by the section coordinator by the section coordinator. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool that I, so my buddy, I took the class from, he's like, Hey, go mm-hmm. to this website, find a match. And there's tons of matches. And that's the other cool thing about in Colorado like just in USPSA clubs, there's 13 clubs for along the front range. Right. So it's like every weekend day, there's a match. Mm-hmm. And if there's not a USPSA match, there's a three gun match or an IDPA match or like whatever. Like there's tons right. of shooting there. So I didn't have to wait like, oh, I got to wait three weeks to my next match. So I literally just like bought a gun. And then that next following weekend, right. I was like, what's happening this weekend? Oh, there's an IDPA match. And I went to that match and uh, shot that. And it was actually a class fire match which is very different than in IDPA. It's very different than a USPSA match where okay. one stage is a classifier. Like the whole match is a classifier, which is like multiple strings of shooting right. the same set of targets. And 
while I attended that match, they're like, there's a couple of USPSA shooters that attended that because they wanted to get classified in IDPA mm-hmm. to attend a section match. Yes. And so, cause in IDPA, you gotta have a certain yes, classification to even participate in whatnot. And you gotta have enough points to even go to some of their bigger matches to that as well. Yes. So. And so I, I was talking to the USPSA shooters at the mm-hmm. IDP match and, and I'm like, this is really cool. Like, I didn't even know, like being able to shoot it all. Right. It was cool to me. And right. they're like, well, if you really like this, <laughs> you should check out these USPSA matches. And right. so that's, that's where the snowball started. And I, st- I started going to the different um, USPSA matches in the section. And mm-hmm. I quickly found, so I started out in like with that XDM was so new, right? Like it didn't have a lot of upgraded parts and right. that kind of stuff like mag extensions and that kind of thing. Right. And so the division I fit into at the time was production. Correct. Right. And of course. shooting 40 caliber in production is like, eh, and there's a bunch of reloads. And I really, um, I was like, I think I shot like five matches where I um, shot production with this XDM. And I was finally like, it's so confusing and complex without all the gun handling going on, like a bunch of reloads in a stage. And right. At that time, I was like, I'm just going to switch to limited. And who's the like, who's really winning matches around here mm-hmm. and shooting limited division. And luckily for me, um, Henning Walgren was yes. one of the, the local heat guys really murdering everybody with a Tanfolio style gun. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, Hey, that guy's winning. I'll, I'll just <laughs> shoot a Tanfolio. So, right. so about a month in, I switched over to, shooting limited division with an EAA witness limited, which mm-hmm. is like the American version of a Tanfolio gun. And I, at that time I still didn't know, is this something I want to do long-term or not? Because I didn't want to spend multiple thousands of dollars on an STI. So or it was definitely a, a hobby at yes. this point. Yes. Totally okay. a hobby. Okay. Totally a hobby. Okay. And I switched over to limited. And then um, that November I went down to area two, which was my first major match. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know like why I picked that match. I don't even know how I got into it. Yeah, I think today it's hard to get into. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what it was 15 years ago, but <laughs> it was still super difficult to was get really? into. Wow. But magically I got into that and I got to see, you know, what is this on the next level, mm-hmm. right? And attending a match with a bunch of stages and it's a big grandiose thing in that mm-hmm. kind of situation. And it, by then I was hooked. So it, it took me like maybe three months and then I was like, I'm all in. So you say all in, like sold RC, sold yeah, every, sold I, everything you had to pay for this sport. Absolutely. So I wow. I liquidated all of my RC stuff and mm-hmm. I was like, I can use this to, you know, get these uh, EAA witness limited guns and mm-hmm. shoot limited with that. And still single at the time. Uh, so I was married at the time. Okay. Yeah. What did your wife think about this? So she, she was okay with it. She, uh, okay. It's not, it's not she, good. <laughs> she was never really super into um, the firearm side of it, but okay. she wasn't against it. Okay. You know, so it was never like a contention around, Oh, evil guns or anything like mm-hmm. that. It's just mm-hmm. not something that she wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Did, um, when you, so when you bought your Springfield, that was the first gun, the you, first pistol. Yeah. That you have actually had in the household. Yep. So there was never a situation where you had guns before for self-protection because no. your, your six foot four stature yes. says I can, I can talk, talk my way out of this just by yeah. intimidation. Shoot a dance and that's it. <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> I can understand that. So when you first started getting into the shooting sports mm-hmm. at that, you know, time, who were the people that, you know, you, you saw that were, you know, besides Henning, you know, what other people were out there when you went to area two that was like going, these people, you know, 
were who I wanted to go after? What would that look it, like so back then? It was actually, so locally we had Henning Walgren and Ron Avery. Okay. And both of those guys were back in that time were super engaged in the local sh- like club match mm-hmm. shooting scene. And it was, I think it was a, like an advantage to me to be able to see like right out of the gate, what GM performance looked like. Okay. Right. So to me, it was very useful to be like, okay, this is maximum performance mm-hmm. versus I think that a lot of competitors start at their local club and maybe the best shooter at their local club is a B class guy or a C class guy. Mm-hmm. And they, they think that's maximum performance. Mm-hmm. And then they end up going to a major match, like an area two or area, any area match. And they mm-hmm. see actual GM performance. They're like, Oh my gosh, like this, and I've seen people get dissuaded that way. Right. Right. They think that the the finish line is a lot more achievable mm-hmm. until they go to a major match and they see maximum performance from solid GM performers. Right. And they're like, man, that is like so much higher of a skill level. That it's just not worth trying to, to obtain, so to say. Right. So I think that I was lucky to be able to see that like right out of the gate. Right. To be like, here's the depth of the pool. Right. Like my, my third or fourth match in, I'm like. Yep, that was a Nationals stage winning performance. Being six foot four, mm-hmm. going into this area of shooting. Yep. And you're with other shooters and you're seeing them take four or five steps to get into position. Yeah. And it's taking you three. Yep. What was that like to overcome or to copy what they were doing? for you what did that look like so it's not the same when you're taller no no it is definitely different like the uh so i i would like i tell myself and the people that i teach i I tell myself if i had a a way back machine okay and i could go back to 2008 charlie and tap him on the shoulder and other than giving him the winning powerball numbers Mm -hmm. right if, if i had to give him some shooting advice i would tell that 2008 charlie that you're you're getting into a practical shooting game that you think is about shooting, but is actually about moving. Yes. So it's a movement game with a little bit of shooting involved. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I would have tackled it from that angle mm-hmm. to start off with, I would have been way better off. Right. I would have not so much cli- like I think I climbed through the classification system pretty fast. Okay. Based on classifiers or based on matches? Based on classifiers. Okay. Because I'm a big guy. And yeah. A lot of classification stuff is really about who can rage blast at stuff. Yep. And so I, I came from, I also came from the, let me, you know, shoot really aggressive and hopefully I get hits mm-hmm. paradigm <laughs> right? versus some people come from the other paradigm of let me get all the alphas and then you got to force those people to be aggressive. Right. Like, so I came from the, let me just be aggressive and then I'll hook up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I wish that I could have tackled it from that movement perspective to right. start off with. We're seeing a lot more classifiers now get released. There was some release this weekend mm-hmm. at nationals that have a lot of movement. Yeah. Do you think more classifiers should continue that same path to bring more movement into the classification system? Uh, I absolutely, I think there is, but I ultimately don't think like for, a. I think the classification system has several elements that are broken but I think it has more elements that are not broken. If you had to say what was broken, is there any details about that? Or is it just kind of the way yeah. all, all the old stuff that's still in there? What do, what do you mean by broken? No, so we play a game where we have to have marksmanship. Yes, sir. We have to have gun handling yeah. and we have to have movement. Correct. And we have to have strategy. Yes. Right. 
So the classification system doesn't test strategy. Okay. Right. A lot of the stages, there's really no strategy to them because it's mandated to you, Mm -hmm. meaning, oh, shoot targets one through three, then reload, and then one through three. Like maybe you get to shoot it left to right or right to left, but that's really not a strategy decision. Right. Then from the movement situation, like there's very, very few, like I think two classifiers where you can legitimately shoot targets on the move right at a decent pace okay like there's some tar- some classifiers where you can shoot stuff on the move where it's more of a mosey kind of movement mm-hmm. where you're really blending positions together mm-hmm. like that's absolutely skill we need but there's there's the movement aspect of it that's the measuring stick is not there mm-hmm. then there's the strategy aspect of it that it's not there okay right because like as a match director myself, right. I like to say that every stage provides the opportunity to make the wrong decision, mm-hmm. right? Because strategy is part of it, right? Right. And not only is strategy part of it, programming that st- strategy is part of it, okay? right? So that skill of how do I m- figure out the most uh, successful strategy, meaning efficiency, getting navigating the stage mm-hmm. that's wrapped around the things that I know I can do consistently, but also I need to program that. So I can execute it subconsciously. Okay. Like the classification system will never get to that point of testing programming. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a little bit of strategy. Like in this match, there was a couple stages or short stages that look very classifier esque, mm-hmm. where you could go to the left first or go to the right first. But ultimately, positions are positions, and it doesn't matter if you go left or right first. Right. Still no strategy. At all. It, yeah. There's really no strategy. Right. So I think that that's the part that's broken in the classification system and Mm -hmm. i don't think there's really an easy way to fix it no i get it i get it yeah because you got to be able to dedicate it everywhere you're set up to be able to use it so i I understand that obstacle as well to go back to your shooting again yeah because we're going to talk a little bit more about this of course a lot more about it but you're six foot four yeah you're walking on the gun range we're one of the taller ones out there Mm -hmm. so a lot of people could go unnoticed when you get to a gun range and and you're new Yep. You didn't have that luxury. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's not, you didn't, but you know, how long was it before, you know, the grandmaster started talking to you? Was it early on or later once you proved yourself or did you feel, you know, what did you feel to that point of what did it take to get to that level when people started recognizing you? So I've always like, I, when people, I'll back this up a little bit. Like when people take my classes and I tell them, Hey, I went from unclassified to grandmaster in 18 months. Yeah. I, I tell them like, I didn't even know how to hold grip a gun. Right. At the start of that, all the way to GM in a very short order. And it wasn't like, I didn't have any innate talents or skills or, you know, predetermined blasting awesomeness. Right. Uh, What I was is I came into the game as a GM student of myself. So I was very good around what does Charlie need to learn things, right? Right. And a piece of that is I can train myself certain things, but there's a certain point where you got to say, I just don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Let me get that information from somebody else. Right. So I like coming into the game, I noticed the Hannings and the Ron Avery's and that kind of thing. And I'm like, hey, guys, can I do some training with you? OK, so like, you, you help me. You reached out for training. Early absolutely. Absolutely. Like I, I've never been a like, let me sit back and hopefully somebody's going to help me out kind of thing. Right. Because you based on earlier what you're talking about having to fix it, you were all about reading the manual. Yes. There was no manual. 
Yeah. So you wanted somebody to explain to you and train you for that manual. Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. When um, you went to that situation of shooting, when did when was your aha moment of this is fixing to be a sport, not a hobby anymore? Uh, so I the, the funny thing about me and hobbies is mm-hmm. that I, I'm I'm all in on something. Okay. Meaning like I was all in on my GTO stuff and club. And when I decided I'm going to do this shooting thing, I was all out of the GTO thing. Right. Unfortunately, I like fortunately or unfortunately, I still have my GTO. It sleeps in my garage. (laughs) Right. So it's still enjoyable here and there. Right. But I put all my focus in whatever my current quote unquote hobby is. Right. And that like, for me to, to, I always want to maximize performance and learn how do I do stuff better? Mm-hmm. Because really like in my everyday life, since I don't, I can't rely on a college degree or whatnot. Mm-hmm. All I can re- rely on is how do I do it better? How do I do it better? How do I do it better? Right. And so I apply that to pretty much any hobby that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so like right out of the gates, I was, I felt like if this is something I want to do, I don't want to waste my time doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. So let me reach out to the get training. Let me, you know, at that time, there really like YouTube stuff really wasn't a thing. Right. Like I bought a bunch of books and at the time it was like the Brian Enos book mm-hmm. and uh, Matt Burkett had some stuff out there. He had some DVDs and, mm-hmm. you know, so I tried to absorb as much training as I could both, you know, in different formats, videos and books and that kind of stuff and taking mm-hmm. trick classes with people. And, and that's how I kind of dove into it. Was the hands on with training just the best way for you to learn? You know, I've. I would say yes and no. Like I'm a big, I'm a big dyno guy, if that makes sense. Okay. Like I like to measure performance mm-hmm. that way. If I, if I know what it is today, I can pick that thing apart, try to fix something and then I can measure it tomorrow. Okay. And did I make progress or not? Right. So I like to test things. Your metrics, metrics guy. Yes. So <laughs> like, I like to test things. And and know like where am I at now? Because if my goal is to get over here, I need to be able to track progress, mm-hmm. right? And that's all for me is also a motivator. Mm-hmm. Like if I have twenty hours this month to invest into training something, I can look at my match videos and be like, oh well, this match I gave away ten seconds in movement, or mm-hmm. I gave away a second in a slow draw. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry about my draw until I fix these 10 seconds of things. Right. Because I can draw the gun a second faster, but it's not, it's going to make a 10th of the reward in a match. So I've always been really good about valuizing the things I'm crappy at. Okay. And working on those things. When you started shooting in in that 18 months to become a grandmaster, Mm -hmm. when did it take you, when you, you know, when you're competing against the best at that point, how long did it take you to get to the top? Well, so the that's the fun thing about it, and that's where I, I feel that the classification system is a little busted mm-hmm. because me coming from that shoot aggressively, you know, hits are kind of optional mm-hmm. world, I could climb the classification system very fast because it rewarded right, you know, that aggressive type of shooting. And I when I made GM, I, I was like to say I was a baby GM because I made a classification. And then I would go to major matches and I'm like, man, I'm still getting murdered. Like okay. I, I thought I was a GM. Like, what the heck is supposed to be like way better at major matches. And that's when it really dawned on me that it wasn't the shooting. It was the movement that wins matches. Did that discourage you at first? Absolutely not. Okay. No, no. Like I, I always like finding the failures. And to me that 
the but enjoyment. This is, but this is finding the failures in yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I enjoy the adventure. Okay. Right? I, I enjoy the tinkering, like right. tinkering on my own skills, tinkering mm-hmm. on my guns, my cars, whatever. Like right. I like testing things and figuring out like, it, like in my book, mm-hmm. I, I talk about um, grip pressure. Okay. Like that was a super, like when I came into it, there was all of this conflicting information around how hard do we grip the gun? Okay. Like some people would be like, grip it like a hammer, grip it really hard, grip it with all your strength, grip it softly, grip it, you know? And I'm like, none of this stuff is a measurable, tangible thing. Right. It's like, I feel like the sun looks like extra yellow today. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) So like in that example, I went down and I, I, I attended a bunch of major matches and I've through my, since like my second or third year on, I would attend at least eight to 12 matches, major matches a year. Okay. And I had the opportunity to, you know, and that's one of the cool things about USPSA is that it's such a small thing. Mm -hmm. You can walk up to the world champ and be like, Hey bud, how's it going? Let me tell me what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you can walk onto a a golf course and be like, Hey, Tiger Woods, tell me about your clubs. Exactly right. (laughs) Right? Exactly right. So I, I would, for a while, I would take this little uh, grip dyno with me and I would, I would ask the top shooters and say, Hey, grip on this grip dyno for me with your grip pressure. And it just like no judgment involved. Just what is your pounds of grip force? What is your pounds of grip force? And that really told me, Hey, for the top performers, they had this minim- minimum level of pounds of grip force right. per hand. Right. You know, and did they like, ever know what you were doing or just you're just evaluating yeah, I, data? I explained it to all of them when I did it. And some of them were like, man, eh, whatever. And some of them were like, man, I'd never done that. Now I know what my numbers are. Right. You know, so hopefully I was helping them, even though it's ultimately like helping myself quantify what is good enough. Right. Because USPSA is a game of. Let's do stuff good enough mm-hmm. because at the pace we need to do it at, there's not enough time to invest in doing everything perfect. Right. Right. Like a perfect sight picture or perfectly settling into a shooting position or perfectly stationary sights on a target. Like there's no time to let that stuff linger. Right. Right. So I, I wanted to know what's good enough in a grip pressure. And that's, that's how I like maintain, like pulled up all this information. And I, I found that, like for the top limited shooters, mm-hmm. they would grip the gun with at least a hundred pounds of grip force. Mm-hmm. And that's where, Oh, now I have a line in the sand that this, like these guys are super successful shooters in limited division. Mm-hmm. I need at least a hundred pounds of grip force when I'm shooting the gun. So then that, that sends me like down the lot. path. It is a lot. That seems like a real a lot. lot. <laughs> wow. It is a lot. And that's, that's one of the things that I... And where I, was yours at when you got started, when you figured that out? I think it was at like 80 or 90 pounds. Okay, so you're at 80. Yeah. And you found out the 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 big dogs were all at 100 plus. <laughs> yep. So that's when I went down the path of, oh, now I got to work out these muscles, you know, and mm-hmm. do the grippers and all these different things. And luckily, I went through that whole effort without actually injuring myself because a lot of people get like, oh, I want to increase my grip strength. And mm-hmm. they do these... Tendons and grip, everything. Yeah, they get up. tendonitis mm-hmm. and all kinds of craziness. And... Luckily, I didn't get into that mode and I was able to dramatically increase my grip strength. And I found reward in that and what I seen in the sights and how well the gun tracked. And that was like, okay, we have all this effort of improving grip strength. And then Mm -hmm. now I can see the result on that on target and in my sights and that kind of thing. 
That's amazing. That I've never heard anybody do that before. This is discussed in your book as well. I'm sure. Yes. I'm not. We won't go into other things. I, there's no telling. I will, we'll talk about that more in a second. But when did you realize you were going? You know, how how did you get on the national rankings? Where have you been? So the the my best finish at the limited nationals is uh, seventh. Wow. Okay. Yep. Very cool. Congratulations. Yeah. Have you have you had aspirations or opportunities to go to the World Shoot or anything? You know, I personally, I in my prior career uh, in the data storage, they they sent me all over the world. Okay. To help troubleshoot stuff and install stuff, and so my my wanting to see the whole world that. Mm-hmm. It's been burned out of me. Got it. <laughs> right? Like, Got I have it. no desire to go see these other countries. I've mm-hmm. been everywhere. I've been traveled everywhere and seen everything. Right. Which I feel very, you know, lucky to have done that. Right. But I also feel like here in the U.S., there is a tremendous amount of shooting available to us in the U.S. Yes, of course. Right? Like, there's multiple matches competing on the same weekends. Oh, I'm, I'm, and, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> right? Every so, weekend, something's going on. <laughs> like, for me, I, I'm all about, hey, I want to get the best return on investment if I'm going to invest the dollars to go to a match. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, and I don't want to say this in a derogatory manner, but a match is a match, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, we can come here to the Nationals. We can go to an area match. We can go to a section match. Right. And if all of those matches are hitting on all cylinders as far as stage design and staff and that kind of stuff, it's ultimately the same product. Right. You know, you're consuming the same thing. You know, so to me, it doesn't make sense to go to the world shoot and say, oh, I'm going to spend six or eight grand to go to this world shoot event mm-hmm. where I'm shooting the same kind of event that right. I could get here. I could do like five or six area level matches Makes for sense. that same money. Right. Right. When did you find out you wanted to become a coach slash trainer? Uh, so I, I found out kind of like the hard way of <laughs> for me to diagnose, become a better student of myself. Okay. I had to hone the skill of actually observing others. All right. And having an objective look at what they're doing. And I found that like one of my shooting buddies that I shot with, like we would go practice together a lot mm-hmm. and I would have him and I would work together and like, Hey, I want you to really pay attention. What are my feet doing right here in this shooting position when I run through this part of the stage mm-hmm. and I would do the same thing for him. And I, I found that the, the better I got at that process, the better and the faster I could find my own issues and fix things. Mm-hmm. And then from a, like a word of mouth perspective is like, Hey, I'm going to do a class. Anybody interested kind of thing. And mm-hmm. people were interested. And really? so I started, okay. you know, pulling together classes and I, I really don't do, I don't have a solid schedule of classes that I do. It's mm-hmm. more of like people are interested and they want to pull together a class in their area. They mm-hmm. reach out to me. If it fits in the schedule, great. If not, maybe next year, maybe whatever. Right. Do you start when you do classes now? Do you do like beginner level or intermediate? Where do you put pull in your classes at? So that's the, the, <laughs> the I laugh because mm-hmm. it's, that is the one conundrum that it's very difficult for me to find an ultimate solution on what product to offer as far as training. Okay. Because there's a tremendous amount of competitors that don't know what is their lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. They know that here's this random list of things they know they need to fix, Mm -hmm. but they, at a minimum, they don't know how to prioritize that list on match value. Like, Oh, could I fix this is going to save me 10 seconds a match or fix Mm -hmm. this one thing is going to save me one second a match. There's a lot of competitors that have that problem, but there's also the problem of if they don't know what they don't know, right? They I, like to me, I could tell a group of 20 
competitors and say, hey, I'm going to go do a position entry class that's two days. And we're just gonna, on entering a position. Just on entering a position. Wow. And they, there would be crickets. <laughs> there would be okay. no okay. interest in that. Right. Because the, the students, the consumers, they want to fix everything. Right. Right. We can't fix everything at once. We no. can only fix one thing at a time. 100% right? agree with that. But when people want to go to a buffet, they want the buffet. Yeah. Right. They don't want to go into a buffet and be like, oh, there's only this one thing. Right. Even though if we fix that one thing, that would be tremendously better traction for their skill set. Right. Then let's touch on a bunch of little things. There's lots of trainers out there in the circuit that are mm-hmm. doing trainings all the time. Do you think that's what sets yours apart? That you do focus on things a little bit more in detail instead of trying to be a broad solution for everything? Yeah. So I so the way I approach my training is that I like to explain the why. Why do things why should things happen in one way versus another? Mm -hmm. And because that's how I learn the best. Right. Like if I can't put the why into context, mm-hmm. then like figuring out a solution for it doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Like, why would we do it this way versus why would we not do it this other way? Mm-hmm. And that's the paramount of my training is let me teach you the why. And if you understand the why, then you're going to understand the value of why would you want to fix this thing or even put effort into trying to fix it. Right. That kind of situation. But I set up my training content like my normal two day class is it covers a a broad set of skills because people want that buffet. Mm -hmm. And I also don't have control of who's attending, right? There could be a D class shooter in the, in the class, Mm -hmm. or there could be a GM in the class and everywhere in between. So that my content over those two days has to hit on all this, like all those different areas Mm -hmm. and all the different depths. Do you travel a lot for classes or people come to you? Um, I try like, usually I do about four or five, like out of state, which like outside of Colorado classes mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. year. And, you know, that's to me, like having a normal day job and that kind of stuff, that's enough for me. Right. Right. So I, I chew up a lot of my own like vacation time on not attending matches like this. Mm-hmm. And I also chew it up like traveling to try like, do training classes and that kind of thing. In your work now that you do, do they under, do they know you're a competitive shooter? They do. That's cool. They do. Do you get to educate people? to that at work or you just kind of leave it alone don't ask don't tell kind of thing based on the based on the atmosphere of the political environment in colorado i so it's really not like i work for a company that they're actually based in california okay so a lot of my coworkers that makes it even better yeah (laughs) a lot of my coworkers like are way left-leaning so it's like one of those like don't ask don't tell like i don't really dive into it and i'm not like pushing for it or like if they ask right. me about stuff sure i'll tell them like what i do and that right. kind of thing but uh, i try to make it as as least awkward as possible right right but I, i'm also not going to risk my career to run over somebody in the office meaning like oh they're talking crazy stuff about guns let yeah, me correct them yes like i'm not going to get into that for yeah. any kind of work stuff and, and so you have created we talked about it you talked about it a couple of times the path of focused effort, a learning guide for practical shooting. Yeah. When did you start the book? So that was a two year effort for and me. That just came out when? So I released that in 2018. Wow. Yeah. So this is new. Yeah. First, first edition kind of thing. So, yeah. you know, a learning guide for practical shooting, but focused effort, because yeah. you talked about that earlier about how you like to focus on 
the details yep. and give the why about the details. Yeah. Is this, is this what's involved in your book? Yeah. So I start like the, so one of the things that I do for all my students is that part of my class is that obtaining and reading my book is one of the prerequisites. Okay. And so I get that to them weeks in advance of the class. Okay. That way, when we actually get together and we only have two days to work together during mm-hmm. a weekend class where there's no like teaching them terminology of things, mm-hmm. right? That kind of situation, like the book itself will stand on its own as far as something that they can help, help them learn things. Like some people are very visual, like I can look at these pictures in here. I can read the content and get stuff out of it. Mm-hmm. Some people are very like monkey see monkey do. Let me show you, mm-hmm. let me like show you, let me adjust this or that physically for them to prove things to them. Mm-hmm. But I, I have them read the book before the class. And that was really ultimately the purpose of it because I noticed when I started doing classes, right the start of day one would be a discussion portion. Right. And I would be, I would pull the the students in the class and say, what do you think your issues are? What do you mm-hmm. think your strengths are and your goals and that's kind of stuff. And then this discussion would, it'd be a great discussion, mm-hmm. but we would chew up a tremendous amount of time on that first day on the discussion portion. Mm-hmm. And that's where some people are like, I came to a shooting class. We're not shooting. What's going on here. It's right. got to go pew unless I'm going to learn something. Right. You know, so that's how I've been able to, optimize that discussion portion of the class you grew up reading manuals Mm -hmm. and studying manuals to do everything you had to do yep when you had to create your own manual (laughs) (laughs) yes was it easy or did you just take a lot of what made it easy for you look at other manuals and kind of adopt that into your own manual so structurally like how to assemble the manual Mm -hmm. was not very difficult for me okay because i'd read a bunch of manuals and technical documentation and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff the challenge for me is that i thought that i could write this book from page one all the way to the final page Mm -hmm. all in one seamless path (laughs) right and i i quickly learned that as you start writing about a certain topic, it always goes off in the weeds somewhere. Yeah. Right. And I would start worrying about, Oh, am I talking too much about this other thing that's correlating with this other skill mm-hmm. you know that kind of stuff. And I quickly found, and this is why it actually took me so long to pull it together is I found that I was better at compiling content. Mm-hmm. If I just thought about a specific topic And I just wrote about that specific topic and I didn't put any restrictions around, am I including ancillary skills? Mm -hmm. Because I could edit that out and meld it together later. So what I ended up doing is I had basically different skills that I bucketized and I wrote about a bunch of different skills. And then when I had all the skills done, then I formed like ordered them. Right. How do these go together? How do they build upon each other? And Mm -hmm. then that's to me, that was the easy part. Wow. The hard part was really making sure that I had all the different skills kind of covered Mm -hmm. in the book. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) It was, it was a a very good learning process for myself. Right. It was really good. Who was your editor? Me. Holy cow. Yeah. Me, me, and me. That would say I do a lot of things, and my wife becomes my editor, and we pretty much throw it away and start over again. So yeah. I, don't, I don't write anymore. <laughs> but but though no, you did it all yourself, congratulations. Yeah. So what's next for Charlie? Where are you at with this? What's so where am I at? So the, 
the interesting thing, like I've been a limited shooter, iron sight shooter. I've been yeah. like a hundred percent dedicated to iron sights right. for this almost 15 year tenure. Okay. And th- like I, like today I'm 46. Okay. And I, over the years after the magical 40, my focus speed okay. has dramatically slowed down. And uh, like I've, I've tried to augment that with getting plus diopter mm-hmm. shooting glasses. It started right. out with plus 0.5s, mm-hmm. then it was plus 0.75s, and then now it's at plus one. Right. And for a seeing the sights perspective, that's those are all great solutions at right. given focal speed times. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with it is that for me, at least and how I observe things, the plus one makes mm-hmm. the distance targets too blurry mm-hmm. to pick a very specific spot on the target to aim at. Right. Like a good example would be like in this match, there's like 25, 30 yard poppers. Mm-hmm. Like those are mega blurry in my sight picture with those plus one um, lenses. Right. And unfortunately, just because of my focal speed, I need that mm-hmm. to be able to process my sights picture and call my shots. And I found out, the difficult way this weekend that mm-hmm. hey like my my iron sight days are pretty much done do you that which brings up a great topic real quick are you a fan of you know it got brought up before august the first are you a fan of limited optics absolutely so you met your so you're an advocate yeah. for that if it comes in you'd be like take my limited gun and get it milled out put a dot on it and let's go yeah like i, I the from a uspsa perspective or whatever mm-hmm. shooting sport you want like I think that some of the sanctioning bodies kind of tackle it the wrong from the wrong angle. Like they want to set the parameters of what a division is Mm -hmm. size of guns, which guns, what do they have? What do they don't have? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of like the opposite angle that they should really attack it from because like the, the small group of people that does practical shooting Mm -hmm. versus the overall consumption of firearms is mega tiny. It is right. And, I think that we don't do ourselves a good service to say we're going to pick and I don't want to say arbitrary, but we pick an arbitrary rule set (laughs) to say that these guns have to fit into this rule set. And, Mm -hmm. oh, company XYZ came out with this totally different product Mm -hmm. that people are buying. And if we want to grow the shooting sports, Mm -hmm. I don't know why we would have a rule set that ostracizes what manufacturers would make. And this new company is, does great in advertising because we both bought some guns based on their advertising. So a lot more 2011s yes. are coming into the market pretty soon. Absolutely. A lot more 2011s. Yeah. Well, man. Well, how can people get in touch with you about your book? How can they order your book? It's pretty good stuff. Path yeah. of Focused Effort. How can they do that? Yeah. So on my website, it's uh, www.bigpandaperformance.com. Okay. So they can get in touch with me on my website there for training mm-hmm. or they can order the book on there nice anything we left off today no i i just want to first i want to say thank you for all the time you invest in attending these matches and helping out your customer base and being supportive of the shooting sports you're very welcome i really appreciate that i'm having a blast i'm meeting so many wonderful people and it's just one of those things where i just what city's next because I'm, I'm doing a lot more stuff out in the Colorado area, one area, two stuff next year. So a lot of ideas for 2023 coming up to get out more in your area. So I've been out in your area before to um, Liberty's Farm Institute. Yeah. So that's a that's a great range there. It is. That's a good place. And did, did stuff up in um, Eaton last year and did other stuff out at Grand Junction as well. So you think some matches will come back to Grand Junction one day without getting too deep into the woods on that? I hope so. I really Me hope too. so. Because that, that facility... 
And the community is great. It's freaking amazing. Right. The facility is great. The That's what sucks great. about the whole thing. If, yeah. they, if they lose matches there, there's actually employees that could lose their job. Yeah. And that they were dependent on that. Yeah. So hopefully some things change. Yeah. Well, man, Charlie, anything else? I got a question for you. Please. So you you are heavily invested in the practical shooting sports yes. with your Hunter's HD Gold lenses. Mm-hmm. Do you see that this is helping you get outside of that bubble into the broader shooting you know, consumer. Yes. Um, extremely. Um, I just did clash bash Texas for an example, and it was my first big AK variant match I'd been to. That was just like one of the ma- one of the majors for yeah. them. And I realized we, we sold a lot of product and did a lot of education of lenses in that, in those three days and sold a lot. And that was an eye opening thing for me to know that there's so much out there that where I'm at with my home and USPSA and steel challenge is what the heart of what made me where I'm at. New shooters are coming in constantly. But when I start like taking like the sun's here in the middle, yeah. and you take a ray of light over here and a ray of light over here and it all starts adding up. It's just it's just growing every day because of being able to be exposed even more. And I, I realized that just like you said, we're just a small bubble yeah. of the entire shooting community. And by building relationships with people like yourself and other areas and other part of the other manufacturers, I don't know how big it can get. So it's kind of yeah. um, exciting um, and very nervous at the same time because we know what we're doing now. And if it wasn't for Hunter's HD Gold, Optical Prescription Lab would have never even been a business through COVID. We'd had to close down because yeah. five or six months, all the optometrists, not the just closed. Yeah. And if it went for Hunter's HD Gold, we wouldn't have a business. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, my wife realizes that. I realize that. So we're not looking to do anything but to continue to grow and reach other markets as we can without losing our core you know, development. So we got a lot of plans for the future. But there's only one Brian. How does there that is. <laughs> well, we've, we've done some stuff with, um, on the East coast this year, we did have a certified expert, um, you know, Bill Dudot go fast. Don't suck. Yeah. He took all my product and demos. He did demo days like I did all over the East coast while I was doing other matches. So I didn't get to go to area seven, area eight, a lot of matches in New York and a lot of other things, but Bill was there. Yeah. And it, you know, it's not the same, but at some point I've got to release some of that power to other people to be there to service, let people educate people about lenses. And that's what, you know, Bill was kind of my test person to be able to do that for the first time on the East Coast. And it worked extremely well. He would come back every Monday and saying, hey, I need you to send me this many pair, you know, to restock. And so it's working. You know, there's only one me, but I want to get to more and be there to support more. So I kind of just strategically put myself where, okay, I didn't do, like I just said earlier, I didn't do area one or area seven, but next year I'm going to area one one week then i'm going to the multi-gun which is the middle part of the united states next week and then the other week is area seven so i think in a three-week span and that may be the opposite order but in three weeks i'm going area seven multi-gun and area one all in three weeks that is a lot of so driving it buddy. is a lot of driving but you know <laughs> there'll be other areas down south that other matches are going on that other people are going to be helping out in the future as well to be able to do what I do, but I've got to be there to promote the brand because you're right. There's only one me and that's why, you know, I'm very slow at making certified experts what they are because I don't, the worst thing that would happen is my, my thing would be, man, Bill was great, but he's just not you. Yeah. And I haven't got that yet. It may come one day, but I want people out there that care about the shooting sports that mm-hmm. make a difference. And that's what it takes. And Bill do Bill with Go Fast Don't Suck, as much as he makes fun of all of us, including me, um, he cares about the shooting sports. Absolutely. So that's 
it's kind of my plan right now, but I don't know. I, I get nervous. It's, it's huge. <laughs> There's so many other sports out there that I'll, I'll get to at some point, but I'm, I'm more of the, Hey, let's, let's take this and strides and go. I'm not about getting rich quick and retiring. I'm in this for the long haul. That's cool. So I get another question for oh, you. If, if you have time, I, do. I don't want to jam you up. No. But, so one of the things that I really liked about the practical shooting sports or just mm-hmm. the gun industry in itself is that from a customer service perspective, mm-hmm. like far and above the the businesses that support the shooting sports mm-hmm. or just shooting in general, their customer service is outstanding. Right. Right. There's very little like, hey, I busted it. How do I fix this? It's very like almost fall over yourself trying right. to, <laughs> to, fix, to take care of the customer. Yep. So did you coming into this game, did you have to change your customer support model to fit that same paradigm? Um, me personally, no. Now, with Optical Prescription Lab, when I came in, they this business started in 77 by my wife's mother. You've heard that story before. Mm-hmm. They never sold direct to the public ever. Oh, so it's a totally new adventure. This was the first time that Optical Prescription Library went direct public. I knew what customer service was. I've been doing it since I was 20 years old or 21 years old until I was 40 in retail management. I learned a long time ago what not to say to people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I knew that being out here, that's why every single email, if you go to contact us on the website or a prescription order form or custom order form, every email comes right to my phone. Yeah. and I see everything because we're still in branding mode where there's an issue. I can't wait. If I get an email on Thursday, I can't wait and answer it on Monday when I get back in the office. Yeah. It gets, it gets answered within 24 hours. Yep. And I forward stuff to Chris all the time. The guy in the office, if I can't make a phone call because I'm at the range, I forward to Chris, please call this customer. Yeah. Cause I, you know, the, the company was built off social media and customer service, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And it can be destroyed just as fast. I realize that. Yeah. So it's a it's a responsibility that if I, I may be in bed one night, wake up at two in the morning with heartburn or something crazy. And I know I'm going to be up for an hour letting this dissolve. And I'll go check emails. Yeah. I'll, I'll reply to emails at two or three in the morning. I don't care if it's if I'm if I'm there, I do it. You know, it's just one of those things. The only time it really just drives me crazy is if I'm doing a 12 hour drive and I'm getting fuel. I look down, I got 48 emails. I'm like going. All right, I'll start answering some of them. And then when I get to the hotel that night, I'm just, that's what I do when I first, usually over dinner, waiting on my meal, I'm answering emails. So it's a responsibility, but it's a passion that I know in customer service that, you know, it's like why I teamed up with Vortex. Mm -hmm. They, they, they're there and they make problems go away. Yeah. And I'm a firefighter. I put fires out. You know, there's not many, but if there is, usually I don't want the public to find out about it. So I put it out quickly as possible. Well, so I, it's, I it's, think a, it's, that, it's, yeah. a, it's a passion. I mean, I think that a lot of companies outside of the shooting sports, they don't realize that, you know, taking care of the problem mm-hmm. is the primary benefit. Right. It's not that it doesn't have problems. There's always going to be problems. There's right. always going to be issues. It's right. How do we tackle those in right. a in a way that kind of dissuades the customer's worry or angst right. around it? Right. Now, you know, I've, I've sold a lot of widgets in 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. And this is just another thing, but now it's something that we were able to create in-house and support our lifestyle and, and help other other 17 families have a lifestyle now with all the employees that we do have. So yeah. it's just a different thing. You know, owning a business sucks. Yeah. <laughs> there is nobody to pat you on the back and say, good job. <laughs> I, mean, I know exactly but, about that. Yeah. But all the customers, all the shooters, all the friendships that I've made, 
and walk up to me at every match saying thank you or good job or thank you for shooting sports just like you did. Yeah. There's my pat on the back. That's awesome. It comes from people like you and other people out there that are shooting every day. So it's just, you know, you got to find it's other ways to be motivated. You know, I, you know, I get up every morning at, at five o'clock in the morning. Sometimes I get to the range and I'm usually the first one there. And mm-hmm. the reason being is, is because there's that one RO that hasn't had time to get there, but he gets there early and I'll be there for that one guy that wants to try Hunter's HD go for the first time. Just, yeah. I, I think that's it, one of the first know, matches I've seen yeah. you at. I think it was like area eight or area seven where you were yeah. the first guy in there and, and I was somehow for whatever reason got there early and i'm like hey how's it going you're here already (laughs) yeah that's always awesome yeah but it's 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 um it's a it's a lifestyle yeah just like your shooting sports has become your lifestyle Mm -hmm. me being at a gun range is my lifestyle and even during 2020 during covid i hit 37 matches during covid i I could write a book on traveling from state to state with covid but it happened you should (laughs) so i think it would be really interesting for you to write a book about your adventure in right. this, right? Well, I didn't do very good in English literature or any of those above, so I'd probably have to just recite to somebody. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and some, get a ghostwriter. Get a ghostwriter. So if anybody's interested, I don't care. I love yeah. talking to people, but you're going to get, you know, my story is crazy because yeah. just like I didn't, I didn't finish college, so up and downs, but I was a survivor in retail world. So yeah. I was, you know, if I worked for this company for this long and get headhunted and go to another company because you in retail management, you had to change jobs to make more money. Yep. <laughs> That's the way it was. And, yep. you know, I found out I was, I was managing 80 plus people at Best Buy and, and then Verizon came along and I went from managing from 80 to eight and made more money. I'm like, yeah. you're like, huh? I thought you had to manage more yeah. money, to, more people to make more money. So <laughs> lost that, lost that bet. So, you know, yeah. it's, you never know what you're going to get into, but it's been, it's been a, a lot, you know, like I said, I made a lot of companies, a lot of money. And now we're in a situation where we're keeping optical prescription lab going for the next generation. And, um, our Sherry's mom who started the company lives with us and yeah. I'll get, I'll, get home from every match and she'll ask how it goes or every night in this situation going home every night after nationals because it's in my you know 45 minutes from home yeah pretty good stuff so my last question for you yes you sell a product Mm -hmm. where consuming it Mm -hmm. sells it Mm -hmm. right having that opportunity to try it out and see like what does that change as far as you know definition or color Mm -hmm. of things and whatnot Mm -hmm. and and like to me it seems like that would be really hard to market the true value of that. I came out when I get into the shooting sports, there's a lot of great frame companies out there. Mm-hmm. I'm a lens manufacturer. So my whole job from the very beginning is to educate people about lenses. Yep. So the demo process was a thing that, you know, other companies have done that I worked for in the past, just in different levels of different things. And I said, how am I going to get an MSRP product out there at $375 without people trying it? Because yep. there's two ways you can go about this. One, try it or go pay Jerry Mitchell X amount of money to put your name on your jersey mm-hmm. and let him talk about it. Yep. And one thing I have done through everything I do is there's not one shooter out there in the entire United States or world that I actually pay. I want yep. people to want to wear Hunter's HD Gold, not half Yes. To wear Hunter's HD Go. That is that is awesome. And we made a decision with that with Sherry early on because I found out what people's billboard prices were. There's mm-hmm. people out there that have a, have a price to be on the billboard. And mm-hmm. I told people early on when I was talking to Sherry, I said, which way, you know, she was like, well, I don't really know because I had the education in sales. She had the education in the lab side of it. And I said, well, I'd rather invest in the shooters by saying, hey, if somebody wanted to wear the logo, I'll give you a discount. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, because I didn't really know what that looked like. We just called it advertising dollars for the ex- extra difference of money. And we put advertising dollars differently in that way to give back and then do even more. So, mm-hmm. we you know, when we first started, we had the way of, you know, we put a lot of product on the prize table. Mm-hmm. You know, every match you go to when you first got started, you see actual, there's the actual product you take with you, not a certificate. And that worked well. But then we realized, you know, if somebody wanted to exchange or if somebody wanted to put a prescription or not, we, we caught ourselves in a lot of shipping costs and a lot of waste, not being able to use certain things over again. So yeah. but it was part of the process. Yeah. So now I'm able to use certificates more, which actually I found out match directors won't <laughs> instead of having to carry a big box of product around with them. Mm-hmm. And we're able to now people can choose if they want a prescription or not. And we, we cut down on cost, which is allowing us to sponsor even more matches. So yeah, great question. It's just one of those things that, you know, I was a kind of, you know, I had a lot of experience with other companies, but, Sherry has given me the power just to say, heck, if it works, it works. Because when I started making prescriptions up front before the customer paid for them, Sherry thought I was insane. <laughs> she goes, I've got, I've got doctors that don't pay their bills. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, from what I found out, these the two A people aren't doctors. Yeah. And they're not, they don't want to be known as that guy. Yep. And now Sherry is like, I don't know what gave you that idea on the prescription side, but it was great. So yeah. that's how we do the, you know, we even make the prescription up front before we let people pay for them as well. You got to mm-hmm. try it first. Because if you don't like it, I want to know why. Yep. I listen to shooters constantly. That's how we came up with Ruby was by listening to shooters. Mm-hmm. You know, gold was an end all be all and still is, but Ruby is another option. Mm-hmm. Ruby was not designed to replace Hunter's HD gold. It's another option for different types of shooting. Yeah. So, but, but I listen to people like yourself constantly. And yeah. we're working on something new for the future, even more because shooters are still getting us more feedback in other areas. So more more stuff to come. Do you think that there's a an opportunity to help shooters see their sights better or whatnot by helping them with like offset prescriptions? That there's a 25, let me back up. There's a 75% success rate on that with monovision. Well, having, not, having I'm, so I'm not even talking monovision. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm talking about like the, the competitors that currently maybe have a prescription, mm-hmm. but they may need like a plus quarter diopter, mm-hmm. a half diopter, a little bit closer so they can right. see their iron sights a little bit better. That's I don't change prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So when somebody gives me a prescription, that is what the prescription is going to be. Yep. Um, we're not we don't have a doctor on staff. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not we're not supposed to change the prescription at all. So I always tell people, go to your doctor yep. to get your shooting prescription. Mm-hmm. And if they like, well, my doctor don't allow me to you know, bring in my gun or my optics. I'm like going, well, if you like ribeyes and you always shop at this grocery store, but they don't have ribeyes anymore. <laughs> go to you, the ribeye store. Do you stop eating ribeyes <laughs> or do you go find another store? Yeah. They're like, but I've been using this doctor forever. Well, that's great. Yeah. But keep your same doctor. Don't change, but go find somebody else who does. And that's why we, we put actually put on the website a tab that says friendly doctors. That's awesome. That way they can actually go click on the website. I didn't put guns, but mm-hmm. friendly doctors. We know what that means in our industry. Yes. And there's doctors all over the United States. They go click on it and find somebody who get them a shooting prescription. That's I, awesome. I tell people Hunter's HD Gold is only as good. As, Hunter's HD Gold prescription is only as good as your prescription. Yeah. Because I'm not, a, you know, we, we can't change prescriptions. We can, mm-hmm. you know, but if it's basic, like what, what people would call over the counter prescriptions, like I just need plus one or plus two. Yeah. That's not a big deal. But when you start talking about, hey, my dot's. This or that, that means you can have an astigmatism yes, and yeah. go see your doctor. Yep. So that's how that works. Yeah. But yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, it's a, it's a learning it's a learning process for me as well. Because uh, 12 years ago, well, I wasn't in the optical industry. This is nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Don't ever want to be a doctor yeah. or a certified optician. My my staff are ABO certified. Mm-hmm. They can work with those. Pro- That's why so many of the prescription processes. I say, forward it, call Chris, and let them handle it. Because those yeah. guys have 15, 20 years experience back in the office as a certified um, American Board of Optician. You know, certified yeah. optician. So they know that kind of stuff. Yeah, and they know what to tell the patient to go tell their doctor to get that stuff done as well. Yeah. Me going through my adventure of trying all these different, you know, plus diopter lenses and stuff. I I don't know how many times I got into discussions with my optometrist and they would have the big thing in front of your face and they're trying all the different things. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's exactly 2020. And I'm like, I don't need it. 2020. That's right. I need it less than that. Yep. Right. And that would just blow their minds. Like their brains are so wired to let's get people to 2020. Yep. That it would be like, I remember have like go, having to go to a different doctor mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, I can only give you a prescription to make your vision 2020. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not what I want. I've told a lot of optometrists that I met that they're shooting. They go, hey, we'll give you this idea. Of this. I said, well, I, not really a lot of things, but I, if you were, you know, I, I'd be very blunt sometimes with the optometrists saying, well, if you're doing your job there, kind of, I wouldn't be here. Because mm-hmm. if they were asking lifestyle questions at the optometrist to say, what do you do? And they say shooting, they'd already have somebody make them a prescription. Yeah. So many, so many doctors don't have time to do that because they get so much money off insurance. Mm-hmm. They got to get them out in and out like cattle. Yeah. And it's just not, so I'm able to give that hand on experience and stuff like that. Cool. Well, man, Charlie, thank you so much again. How can people get in touch with you one more time before we get off here? Yeah, it's good. Just go to my website, bigpandaperformance.com. And it's the same thing on Instagram. Just look, search for Big Panda Performance. Awesome. Well, if you have any more questions for Charlie, he's gave you the ideas out there to get in touch with him. Get his book. I've got a copy of it. Look forward to reading it myself. I'm not a shooter, but I'm always interested in how different people bring in the focus side of shooting, which he's doing himself. But if you have any questions, you don't know how to get in touch with Charlie, always email me at info at huntershdgold.com. Got a lot of great emails coming in. Thank you so much for that. Follow us on all the um, social media platforms. And until next time, we'll see you at the range soon. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you.